0: Open your Bibles please to First Corinthians chapter six. Last week we looked at chapter five, in which Paul addresses an issue that the apparently the Corinthians did not think was an issue at all. There was a man in the congregation who is having an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife, that is, his stepmother. The language indicates that uh, this was not his mother, it was his father's wife, I guess a second or third wife, we don't know. It doesn't tell us whether or not the father was alive or not. But one thing is clear, that the situation was contrary to God's law as found in the Old Testament, Roman law as well, and cultural practices. But I find it interesting that apart from mentioning the man's sin in the first verse, the sin that Paul was more concerned with was the entire, or it involved the entire congregation. They weren't bothered by the situation, but not only that, they were actually proud and boastful about the whole business. By the way, I think this is why Paul doesn't quote chapter and verse. He doesn't go to Leviticus 18, verse 8, and say, See here, God says that this is wrong. Because Had he done that, then the focus would have been on the man and his sin, and and that is an important issue. But more important than that was the church's attitude toward the sin, not only tolerant but proud of it. As much as to say, the rules of God do not apply to us, the laws of the land do not apply to us, the social norms of the culture around us do not apply to us. Paul instructs them that they are to put the man out of the congregation arguing that his sin may, in fact, infect the entire congregation. And secondly, by telling them it is not their responsibility to judge those outside the church, but those who are within the congregation. Having established that principle, and it is an important principle, that we are not to judge those outside, but those inside the congregation, Paul now tackles several more issues in chapter 6. Again, I don't think that these were issues in the minds of the Corinthian believers. And by all well, all indications, they did not write to Paul about this. When we get to chapter 7 next week, the Lord willing, we will see what they wrote about, and Paul will say now about, you know, the things you wrote about, and the rest of the book will deal with that. But in the first four chapters, Paul tries to correct their thinking about the gospel and about himself and his authority. Here in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with issues they don't even mention, but which are really important. As in chapter 5, Paul addresses primarily the entire congregation, the whole community, the, the church. The first section deals with two particular individuals. The second half of the chapter... We don't know how many people involved. Uh, apparently, it involved more than one. Uh, but a practice that had arisen in the Corinthian church, and Paul seeks to correct it. Let's begin by reading verses one through six. And by the way, I, I think you'll get as I read this. Paul's not happy, okay, about this situation. But notice how many times he uses questions rather than direct statements or even, you know, statements with exclamation marks, but really questions to sort of draw them out. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers." The situation seems fairly straightforward. One member of the congregation, we'll call him Brother A, defrauded or cheated somebody else in the congregation. We will refer to him as Brother B. And B took A to court before the civil magistrates, which in those days was usually located in the public square, usually outdoors. So this is a very public thing that occurs in the city of Corinth, He takes them there. The word used here is dispute, but it's actually a technical word for lawsuit or legal action. Somebody who has been wronged, that is B, takes A to court uh, to get satisfaction. What is the problem as Paul sees it? Are we not supposed to do this? Well, for him, the case is brought to the wrong court. It's brought to the ungodly instead of to the saints, the holy ones, God's people, as Paul tells them in the beginning of the book. They are the ones who are called to be holy. Now, just sort of a side note here. Ungodly means literally unjust. And, and Paul is not demeaning the legal system. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you find that Paul, in fact, did participate in the legal system. He was arrested. He was put on trial a number of times. Uh, in Philippi, he was arrested unjustly and then beaten. And it was only later when he said, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen... That people got really scared because they had broken the law. I think what Paul means, well, he says it in verse number six, that these people are unbelievers. But why doesn't he say unbelievers at the beginning instead of saying ungodly? Well, because Paul is thinking of the big picture, of the final judgment when God will judge everyone and there will be a division between those who are his people, the saints, those who are not his people, who are not like him, who are ungodlike, the ungodly. And so now Paul takes that term and brings it to the present situation and refers to them that the ungodly, those who are ungodlike will be judged by the godly, those who are God's people. To Paul, the situation is absurd. In the final analysis, God's people will judge those who are not God's people at the final judgment. And how this will work out, we're not told. He simply makes a statement that this is what will happen. Now, if that's the case, isn't it bizarre that now we are asking the ungodly to judge those who are God's people? It's the reverse of what God happens. And the Corinthians should have known this. I don't know if you know but three times Paul asks the question, Do you not know? As much as to say, you, you should know this. You should know this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? As I said, Paul doesn't explain what this means, nor does anyone else in the New Testament for that matter. Rather, it is something that is assumed. And, and for our purposes, it, it provides the foundation for the next question. If we are to judge the world, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial things? Listen, if you're going to judge life and death eternal issues, who will go to hell or not? That's as big as it gets. Can't you deal with these, these lawsuits, these legal disputes? The congregation is the place where this should take place. This is the place where the judgment should be made. Again, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, Paul does not explain. But it, it's stated, I think, to give us perspective. If we're going to judge supernatural beings, spiritual creatures, then why don't we have a sense of judgment to deal with the things of this life? Listen, if we're going to sit an ultimate judgment of angels, if we are going to cast angels into hell by our judgment, but we we can't take care of this matter. So the church in Corinth, Paul thinks, should appoint judges, or should appoint individuals to serve as judges, that even the least person in the church, even the least of the Christians, would be more qualified to make a judgment. And if we had any questions how Paul feels about this, he says, I say this to shame you. Uh, and do you remember that we saw in chapter 4, Paul had said in verse 14, I'm not saying this to shame you. There he's, he doesn't. Want, here, he's put out. He's had it. What they have done is absolutely wrong. A church that has embraced wisdom, in fact, they believe that they are wiser than Paul, they understand the gospel better than Paul. Oh, and you're so wise, and you can't take, of, take care of something like this in-house? The final straw is that it is done in front of unbelievers. I don't think it's a question of embarrassment. You know, oh, our testimony will, is, is bad in the eyes of the world. We are sinners. We acknowledge that we are sinners. But I think such a lawsuit... as as oftentimes is the case, is based on a matter of rights and property. And Paul is saying, when you have two believers that are dealing with this, there should be issues more important than the issues of rights and properties. In fact, Jesus had spelled out what should happen to take this case. If A had sinned against B, then B, you know, he's sinned by defrauding him, then B should go to A and say, listen, you've cheated me, you need to make this right. If he refuses to listen and make things right, then B goes away, he brings with him a couple of witnesses, and again, they confront this person and say, you've cheated me. If he refuses to listen and make them right, then they go to the church, the congregation, the whole congregation, and they call A before the congregation, and they say... You have defrauded this man. You need to make it right. And if you won't listen, you kick him out. You excommunicate him. So why, why didn't Brother B follow this procedure? Because he might not get his money back. The guy gets kicked out of church, but there's no restitution required. If you take him to court, then restitution, in fact, is required. I think he went to court because he thought he had a better chance of of getting back what was his. Now, Paul addresses the two parties involved in verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. I think in this passage, Paul is speaking to the two men involved, but the congregation is still listening. He says to the plaintiff, listen, win or lose, you lose. Here is your brother, you are part of a congregation, this should be dealt with in-house. If you go outside the congregation, you go to court, even if you win, you in fact lose. Paul tells the man, you should rather have allowed this to go, rather to be wrong, why not be cheated? Okay. In the eternal scheme of things, being wronged in a business venture is not the biggest loss. It is not to say that it isn't painful and uh, It may have, in fact, been very painful. We don't know the amount of money that was involved. We don't know what was involved here. We simply know that one man cheated another. And I think, as Christians, when we decide to follow what the Scriptures teach us, we need to understand it may, in fact, be very, very painful. Do you remember the story of the unjust or the unmerciful servant? It's a parable that Jesus told. There's a servant who owes his master 10,000 talents, Uh, Jesus is obviously engaging in hyperbole because a talent is 75 pounds of either silver or gold. Okay? 10,000 talents. That's 750,000 pounds of silver or gold. Okay, how you could get into debt that much, I don't know. But he begs the man for mercy and the master cancels the debt. He leaves the master, and then he runs into a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. And I find it interesting that the NIV, at the footnote, because, you know, what's a talent, what's a denarius, people may not know. For the ten thousand, it says, several million dollars. And then for the denarii, it says, a few dollars. That's not right. A denarius was one day's pay. So a hundred denarii, is basically one-fourth year's salary. I don't know about you, but a fourth of a year's salary, to me, is a significant amount of money. Now, he had just been forgiven a huge debt. Should he not have forgiven this debt? Yes, but you know what? If he had, it would have been painful. It would have been painful. Because just to wipe that, you know, write it off the books, that's not easy to do. And I think oftentimes we misunderstand that parable, thinking, you know, what people have done to you, it's not a big deal. Sometimes it is. And when Paul says to this man, should you not rather have been wronged? Shouldn't you have allowed yourself to be cheated? Uh, Paul's not saying it would be easy or painless. In fact, it could be very painful. But Paul says there's more important things than being wrong or cheated. Then Paul addresses the defendant and tells him, you have cheated and done wrong. What you did was wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And Paul doesn't say so, but the man needs to make it right. He needs to make it right. Now, We could spend an entire series just on this issue of going to court. I do not think that Paul is saying we don't have the right to go to court. Because otherwise, if we don't, then everyone's going to want to do business with us because they know they can cheat us and we won't go to court. Okay? I don't think Paul is saying that. I think what Paul is saying is when you have a business dealing between two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister two members of the congregation, and there is a dispute. If one wrongs the other, then either church discipline must be practiced, or, as has been done in the church in the past, a board of judges is set up within the church to hear the case, and then they make a judgment. But Paul isn't saying that we don't have the right to protect ourselves, our property in court. What he's saying is, within the congregation, there are more important things than our rights than and our property. And I hope that that's clear. Then Paul gives a warning. And the warning is, in a sense, to sort of tie off this particular section, but also to open the next section. Um, You see, the problem with the Corinthians is, they are now in the kingdom of God, but they're still living as though they're in the kingdom of Satan, in the kingdom of darkness they say that they are Christians, but they're living like the ungodly. And Paul wants to sort of make a clear distinction, and that may be why he used ungodly earlier. I mean, just to, let's, let's get this clear. There are those who are not believers, there are those who are believers. Look if you would at verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words... You used to be this way. You used to be in this kingdom. Now you've been washed. You've been transformed. You're over here. Why are you acting as though you're still over here? By the way, this list that he gives us here, he's added, it actually comes from chapter 5, when he's talking about who not to associate with. He adds four things here. The first is thieves. Okay, I think that has to do with the brother who cheated. Okay, If you cheated, you stole you're a thief. okay? Or as my younger sister used to say when we were little, stealer. You, know? you stole. You cheated. okay, You defrauded. And you know what? Thieves have no place in the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to make this right. But then Paul adds three that are sexual in nature. Adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders. And I'm, I'm convinced that Paul brings these up in connection with what follows. Okay. I would remind you again of what I said in chapter 5. Paul deals with issues that Jesus never talked about because they were not issues within the cultural context where Jesus was. They were forbidden by Old Testament law. These things that Paul has mentioned were considered capital crimes that were punishable by death. Remember the woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus because she's supposed to be put to death. That's the law. Okay? So Jesus is not going to talk about the things that Paul will. Paul now lives in a Gentile culture that not only, not only tolerates these things, but glorifies these things. So he has to deal with them, whereas Jesus did not. There's a progression, by the way, in chapters 5 and 6, that in chapter 5, the Corinthians failed to judge properly regarding the man living with his stepmother, the man involved in incest. They're proud about this and boasting about it. Here in chapter 6, they have failed to judge properly in the case involving the two members. The wise Corinthians have failed to take this into their own hands. They let it go to court. And now they show a lack of judgment with regard to sexual immorality. Specifically, going to prostitutes is what Paul deals with. But the problem is their view of two things. Their view of freedom and their view of the body. It's a double error. And because of this, and this will come up again in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul must deal with this. There are three parts to this. The false premise or the false premises, the correct premise, and then Paul's words at the end. First of all, verses 12, 13, and 14. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. The NIV is helpful here in that it puts quotation marks. Everything is permissible for me. Because those who translated are convinced, as am I, that this is not what Paul is saying. This is what the Corinthians are saying. They are saying, hey, Paul, we're Christians. Everything is permissible for us. Could that be why they allow this man who is sleeping with his stepmother? They're like, hey, look at the freedom we have. We can even do this. Something that the culture thinks is gross and immoral. We have the freedom to do that. Paul will use this again, by the way, in chapter 10. He'll bring it up again, because apparently this is a Corinthian slogan. Hey, we can do anything we want. Now, we're not quite sure how the Corinthians arrived at this conclusion. Um, Perhaps they misunderstood what Paul had said because, if you read Paul's writings, he says he tells us that once we become Christians, we are free. We used to be the slaves of sin, and now we are free from sin. We are free, and perhaps they mis—they misheard him. They only remembered the part about being free, and so they thought that they were free to do anything they want. It could also be because there are Gentiles and Jews in the congregation, and you know, the Jews don't eat pork and they don't eat certain things, that Paul, as he does in Romans 14, says, listen, you can eat, you have the freedom to eat and not eat whatever you want. You can observe holy days or not. You know, you can drink or not. Uh, You have freedom there. And maybe, you know, you give somebody an inch and they take a mile. Maybe they thought, ooh, free. Um, And they thought that they had the freedom to do whatever they wanted But Paul was not including ethical issues here. He wasn't including issues of morality. But in any case, the Corinthians thought that they could do whatever they wanted. And what is Paul's response? Interestingly enough, he doesn't quote chapter and verse. He doesn't say, hey, you guys, don't you know the Old Testament law? God says, don't do this. the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. No. He qualifies their statement in such a way as to negate it. Everything is permissible. but the first qualification. Not everything is beneficial. You know, if I have the freedom to do everything, I need to acknowledge that not everything I do is good for me. Which is as much as to say, then perhaps I shouldn't do everything. If it's not good for me, then I shouldn't do it. The second qualification is, but I will not be mastered by anything. And there's a play on words here. I am free to do anything, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Paul's conclusion is, I should not do something just because I can. I should ask two questions. Is it beneficial? Is it something that may in fact enslave me? Will it become my master? And if I ask these questions... Then I'm acknowledging that not everything is permissible, because if not everything's permissible, or that if everything is permissible, then who cares if it's beneficial? You know, who cares if it enslaves me? I have the freedom to do what I want. So their first false premise is regarding freedom. The second false premise regards the body: food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, Paul doesn't come out directly and disagree with him. In fact, he seems to agree with him in that he states that God will destroy them both. As much as to say the body and the food are for this present age. But Paul must be careful. Because if he allows this principle to stand, if you say the body is for food and food is for the body, eating involves an appetite, If you open that door, then you might say the body for sex and sex for the body. And it doesn't really matter because guns going to destroy them both. So it doesn't really matter what you do. Paul must be very, very careful at this point. So he makes things a little bit clearer. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God did not create us with physical bodies so that we might engage in sexual immorality. But that we might engage in proper sexual activity. And now that Jesus has come, and just to remind you, a parenthesis here, in Paul's writings, whenever he says God, he's usually referring to God the Father. Whenever he says the Lord, he's usually referring to Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. So here, when he says, that the body is for the Lord. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that God has sent His Son into the world and the Son has come to redeem us, our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord is for our body. As a result of our salvation, our entire being belonged to God. And we should understand this. He gave His life. He sacrificed His body that we might have life. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise us from the dead. It would seem that the Corinthians had taken on a view that was common in Greek philosophy and sadly enough is very common even among many Christians today. That is, they believed in the immortality of the soul and the mortality of the body. That is to say, the soul will never die, but the body will die. So the body is temporary, the soul is eternal. So the body is just sort of this Socrates called it a prison. It just sort of carried. It's like a, almost like a vehicle, just to carry around the really important stuff, your soul. This is a pagan view. The Christian view we affirm today in the Apostles' Creed: I believe in the resurrection of the body. The body is not simply mortal; it is immortal. Christ came not only to save our souls, but to save our bodies. I think that when I first began to understand that it seemed so strange to me because I had grown up being taught that that the body really doesn't matter it's just your soul that Christ came to die for your soul and save your souls no he came for our bodies as well so in verses 15 through 17 he gives us the correct premise the correct foundation do you not know again there you know you guys should know this do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We belong to Christ body and soul. More than that, we are joined in Christ, body and soul. We are one with Christ. There is union. Sexual uh, relations involves union. Even sexual immorality involves union. Paul quotes here from Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve came together, the two became one flesh. Now, marriage is much more, much, much more than becoming one flesh. Paul is, however, focusing here because that's what happens when a person has sexual relations with a prostitute. Paul is not saying that sexual union equals marriage. Okay? Marriage does involve sexual relations, but that doesn't automatically mean marriage. Jesus indicates this, by the way, in John chapter 5, or chapter 4. Do you know the story of the Samaritan woman? Jesus tells her, go get your husband. And she goes, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you know, you're, you're telling the truth. You've been married five times, and the man you now have is not your husband. In other words, the man you're having sexual relations with now is not your husband. So there were five marriages, and this isn't a marriage. Just because you're sleeping with him doesn't make it marriage. And Paul is not making the equation as well. What he is talking about is the one-flesh experience that sexual relations bring about. And Paul is not saying that marriage is incompatible with union with Christ. Rather, what he is saying is sexual immorality is incompatible with being a Christian, with union with Christ. The body shouldn't be seen as, who cares what you do with your body? After all, it's going to be destroyed anyway, and we're going to get a new one later on. Well, when we get to chapter 15, Paul will explain that the new body begins in the old body. You don't have an old body, you don't get a new one. That's the way it works. So this must be pretty important. And it belongs to Christ. Again, I, why doesn't Paul simply say, Okay, folks, seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery. Because it isn't simply that, it is the review of the body. They fail to understand the body is important. The body belongs to Christ. Someone who is united with the Lord is united with him or is one with him in spirit. Paul has told us as much in chapter 2. Now we come to the prohibition. What is Paul's solution here to this problem? Verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Sexual temptation is strong. It can be devastating you need to run from it. And we have examples, uh, well, I think the primary example is that of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, where she said, come sleep with me, and grabbed his, his jacket, his coat, and he slipped out of it and ran away. Paul says you need to run away from it. When it comes up, you need to run away from it, flee from sexual immorality. Because the one who sins, sexually sins against his own body. I have to tell you, what Paul means here is not clear. There are at least 30 different opinions as to what Paul means. Because, and, and to me, I, I find myself arguing with Paul because there seems that there are other sins that you can commit that are against your body. Uh, you know, if you don't eat the right foods, if you take in things that are not good for your body, things like that, uh, those would seem to be sins against your body. But Paul seems to indicate, and Calvin tells us this, that there's one sin that so stains the body, and that sin is sexual by nature. And, you know, I don't know what Paul means, but I take what he says to be true. He is an apostle, a pillar of the church, and so I take it to be true. It is a sin against the body. Paul says, we don't belong to ourselves. My body is actually not my body. It is the temple. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It has been purchased. When Christ died on the cross, he did not simply die for my personality, my spirit, my soul. He died for all of me. I don't belong to myself. I have been purchased. And therefore, as a slave does not have the freedom to do whatever he or she wants, I don't have that freedom either. And so Paul says, therefore, honor God with your body. And how do you honor God with your body? Paul doesn't explain, but I think we can take from what he says here. We dishonor our body through sexual immorality. Therefore, one way of honoring God is through sexual purity, through sexual morality. And uh, I mentioned this in Sunday school, but I find it interesting throughout Scripture that whenever these words come down that seem really harsh, there's still a word of encouragement. There's still a word of instruction. Paul's last word is never judgment. The last word in Scripture is never judgment. At the end of time, when we stand before God, that final judgment, that'll be the final word. But in this life, There is always this word of grace, this word of mercy, this word saying, make things right. Okay, let me wrap this up. There are three things that stand out to me after studying this passage. The first thing, and I don't know if you noticed, is that Paul seems to cover everything from the beginning to the end. He starts by talking about the final judgment, that we're going to judge the ungodly, we're going to judge angels. There's this final judgment. And then toward the end, he talks about the two becoming one flesh from Genesis. So we have creation, we have judgment, we have redemption in between, where he talks about the fact that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I think Paul has great perspective from the beginning to the end and and everything in between. I, I read something this week. One writer put it this way, that one of the drawbacks of being a mere creature is that you see everything the wrong way around. You look at things from a man's view standpoint and not from God's. The order in which things ultimately exist is usually the precise opposite of the order in which we come to know them. So that when we hear what Paul says in this passage, it just seems really hard. It, it, some of it may seem easier than others, but it just... Paul, I'm not quite sure. Well... I think Paul had insight that God had given him and he saw things as he should. The second thing, how do we apply this to our lives today? I think the issue for us is the issue of rights. We live in a country and a culture in which rights are seen as, well, rights. No, we have rights. We talk about God given rights. It's in the Declaration of Independence, it's in the Constitution. We have rights. And one could argue that many conflicts that arise, if not most or all, is a case of somebody violating somebody else's rights or somebody perceiving that their rights have been violated. As Christians within the congregation, we are to be willing to give up our rights or the things that we think are our rights. Instead of saying, this is who I am, this is what I desire, this is how I'm going to act, we need to understand that rights is not the beginning and the ending of our existence. I think this entire passage, if I could boil it down to one word, it would be the word rights. Do I have the right to do these things? And then the third thing, and this comes from something Guy and I watched this past Thursday or Friday on TV, about uh, Aaron Ralston. I don't know if any of you have heard of his story. This was a young man who was hiking a couple years ago, uh, I think in Utah, and got pinned. And he, a boulder pinned his right hand from like the wrist down, pinned it against the wall of a canyon. And he was there for five days. And, and finally, he realized... <laughs> I've got to do something, I'm not gonna make it out of here. He accidentally he had a pocket knife and he accidentally punctured his thumb and gas began to come out because he was beginning his body was beginning to decompose. And so he realized I've got to amputate my right hand. And he, he gave it an excruciating detail and he and I were watching and you know, there are no pictures, but we're still sort of like this, you know, it's just like, oh it Um, the first thing he had to do was to break the two bones. And what he had to do was to torque his body in such a way as to snap them. And he said when the first one snapped you could hear it echo through the canyon. And then he had to torque the other way to break the other one. So he broke both bones and then he had to cut with his knife which was dull at this point through the skin through the muscle. And then he talked about finding the nerve which is like string of spaghetti that when he touched it, he felt it all the way up to his shoulder. And the knife was not sharp enough to cut through. He had to sort of tug up on it, and he said it was, the pain was excruciating. Then he got to the tendons, and he had to use pliers to cut them. It's unbelievable. I mean, and and he made it. He cut his hand off, and he had a tourniquet, and... He had to get out and then walked out of the canyon, rappelled down 60 feet down a canyon wall, and then began to walk seven miles to try to get help. Well, one of the shows, he was on several shows this week, he showed some pictures, and one picture he took after he amputated that, his hand. And you see this boulder, and you can sort of see what's left sticking out, and there's just blood everywhere. And he said, I think this was on Letterman. He said, That's the most beautiful picture I could have ever taken. I'm like, What? He said, Because that picture tells me that I was free from that rock. That now I had a chance to live. He had to be willing to cut off his right hand in order to live. He had to be willing to give up his right, if you wish, his right hand to live. I think Paul would say to us, "Listen folks, you need to be willing to give up your rights in order to live the life that God wants you to live." Uh, Aaron said that the blood on the wall there, that was the placenta and the afterbirth of his new life, because now he has a new life. He escaped uh, from that. It's, it's an amazing story, but I think the application is so apropos. You know what, folks? sometimes we have to be willing to give up something in order to get and Paul says to these Corinthians you're cheated not the end of the world you think you have the freedom to do what you want with your body you don't give that up give up your rights and in the end you gain something far greater and that is union with Christ and life in the spirit let's pray together Our Father, this is a hard passage for us because it goes against the way that our culture thinks, the way that oftentimes we think. We have rights. People have died that we might have these rights. And then to give them up, it doesn't seem like that's the right thing to do. Frankly, we don't like being told what to do. We have a sense as a people that we have pretty good intuition about what is right and what is wrong, what is good for us and what isn't. But what Paul says is truth, and we need to embrace it. We need to be willing to give up what we think are our rights in order that we might have life in Christ. May we realize that to give these things up may not be easy. It may not be painless. Just as this man had to amputate his own right hand. It was excruciatingly painful. To give up our rights may be very, very painful. But there's something far better, life in the Spirit, union with Christ, to be your children. Father, this is a lot of information and a lot to digest. I pray that by your Spirit in the days to come, we would think on these things and meditate on them. I ask now that your grace and Spirit would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?